0: They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today.
1: I'm April Voki, and you are listening to Anchored. My chance to speak with some of the most influential people involved in the outdoors today. Join me as I sit down with my guests to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both indoors and out. For many of us, Kelly Gallup is a household name. His unique fly fishing approach has earned him his place in the fly fishing industry. Kelly is the owner of the popular Gallup Slide and Lodge on the Madison River, but his story begins long before he moved to Montana. In this episode of Anchored, we discuss fly tying materials, presentation, the industry, and of course, the names of his flies. While I have you here, this weekend I'll be hanging out at the Celebrating Women in Fly Fishing Virtual Expo. The expo is open to men and women, and it hosts an amazing lineup of exhibitors, casting clinics, tying demonstrators, artists, presentations, and more. I'm excited to be one of the 21 Zoom rooms, say that five times fast, (laughs) 21 Zoom rooms, where I'll be hanging out for the day, answering questions, and getting to know visitors better. You can buy your tickets at CelebratingWomenInFlyFishing.com, and I'll see you there soon. This episode of Anchored is brought to you by Great Fishing Adventures of Australia. The diversity of Australia's fishing experiences is as vast as the country itself. Great Fishing Adventures of Australia is the catch of Australia's best fishing operators that have come together to collectively raise the profile of Australia as a world class fishing destination. No matter what the season, Australia offers enthusiasts the opportunity to indulge in their passion and experience some of the world's very best fishing amongst some of the most naturally spectacular environments the world has to offer. Discover your next fishing adventure by visiting australia.com forward slash fishing. I will just make sure I'm all set up. So how are ya?
2: I'm great. Couldn't be better. We we
1: finally finally made it happen. (laughs)
2: Like a month, two, (laughs) two months, a year. Uh, No, it's a year.
1: (laughs) Actually, you don't know it yet, but it's more like seven years because you've been on my list since I started this show. But we're just going to start with where we start everybody. So we're going to start with where you were born and raised.
2: Born and raised in Michigan. I was in Michigan for the first 40 years of my life, guided there all my life. So yes, Michigan, same with a lot of people you know. I mean, a lot of Michigan, you get a lot of Michigan connection, I think, but yeah, in the Great Lakes.
1: And do you know why it's Michigan specifically and not like Pennsylvania or New York or Ohio? It's because Michigan has... The most incredible fishing, in my opinion, of all of those Great Lake regions. Oh, for sure. And, and I would, I'd say probably most comparable to British Columbia as well.
2: Yeah, it's pretty unique. I mean, I mean, it's the the, the salmon, that whole thing, the steelhead, uh, but the freshwater, everything, warm water, cold water. I mean, the thing that makes it unique is it's kind of that they started the... A lot of people don't know that they put steelhead in the Great Lakes 11 years before brown trout were brought to the U.S. They sat in that lake for almost 100 years. My dad was one of the first guides in Michigan. And I said, how the hell could you not know we had steelhead here? And he said, well, it's simple. We had a thing called a job and we actually (laughs) were. And it really, the steelhead thing, which were McLeod River steelhead from California, and they were brought in way, way long time ago. And then, of course, the thing that got its attention was the salmon, which was a massive economic boom to that whole region. And so, and I grew up through it. I mean, that all started in the 60s. It's when it all started coming around. And so I was a kid and Pretty crazy place to grow up back then with all that, with everything that was there. The smallmouth in the Great Lakes is unparalleled in the world, and nobody did that. We had that to ourselves forever. Just, It was just incredible. I mean, if you wanted to fish trout, great. You had every trout you wanted, and pretty special time to grow up, actually. I tell people a lot that I should be talking about the 18 or early 1900s because it's just it, there was nobody around in those early days.
1: So your dad, though, he was a fishing guide. I mean, I'm assuming because you said that he was referring to having a job that he he, he wasn't a long time fishing guide or was he? he was, what, what's his story? He
2: no, he wasn't a long time, but uh, he was referring more to the fact that there was a lot of thing, people didn't recreate fishing like they do now. He was a guy, he was the first PM guy, 1940. And so they didn't like recre. everybody wasn't out fishing every day like they are nowadays. And, you know, there weren't fly shops all over and guide services. And it was, it was a summertime activity for the most part. It was basically the affluent people mostly that would be guided. And so you're just. And it was, you know, and it's fly fishing because you're, and so you're hatch fishing then. And it was more, more traditional fly fishing, and you just didn't do it year round, and nobody made a living at it. I mean, not on a solely that. They, they were outdoorsy. I mean, I had uncles that were grouse guides and trout guides, but they weren't just. You had to do something else, you know. wasn't like today,
1: right? So so that was actually my next question: Is if you were raised um, by a, a guide? And I guess I should rephrase that question by asking: If was he guiding while you were growing up, or was this something he started after you had kind of flown the coop? Yeah,
2: he no, he did it before I was alive. I mean, he was, and I don't think I think he did it on and off for two years, maybe maybe three. I don't think really, and then being a baby boomer you know you it was just kind of one of those things that there were very few people guiding but it was it was a unique opportunity because he was an outdoorsman and he he was more put me in line with the right people to keep me my interest going from that you know into that so but not really he really didn't even fish uh much after when I by the time ice come around, I mean occasionally out in Lake Michigan, smallmouth and stuff. But he wasn't. I took him fly fishing, guided him. Probably, I think it's the first time he'd fly fish anything other than bluegills in about in the '80s, sometime down the Pier Marquette. It was it was really crazy because I thought, oh shit, is he going to know anything about it? And he knew every run what was coming, and he hadn't been on that river since the '50s. And I would say, well, this is the Cove. He goes, my ass, this is Woodpecker Island, has been forever. <laughs> he goes, I don't know who renamed it, but this is not the Cove. <laughs> he, he knew every run in that river, and it was amazing. It was really cool. I was kind of excited about a buddy with me, because oh, I'd always been low in sunshine, but, you know, my dad was a guy. And, I was, and, he was, and he was really good friends with my dad, too, Jerry Wilson. And uh, you know Jerry jerry and peter and big jerry Jerry, yes i love him. he's the best and and so we're fishing and i'm like i was all nervous thinking oh shit you know what if he doesn't man he just smoked it and we had one of the best days we ever had we're trout fishing and we just crushed it and we had a blast and and what i didn't know is that the pier marquette club the rod and gun club had planted this stretch right And we have Browns coming out of, they get to do it once a year. I don't remember how it was. It's a logistics thing. They get to put it in, put fish in their stretch. And man, I think we caught every one. And we got done. And he goes, Jesus, it was never like that when I was guiding. And I said, oh, it's always like that. Right. I've never seen anything like it since or even close. But it was like that magic day. It was the three of us. And Jerry and my dad were great friends. And and, uh, it was really cool you know, but he, he, he encouraged the behavior. I'd say he didn't really do it as much. He just encouraged, you know, he got me started tying flies. And when I was five, he was a genius. He had me, he kept telling me every time I tied a fly, that's the best one he'd ever seen. And I bought into that shit forever (laughs) until I was about 14. And I said, you know, when's the last time you tied your own fly? You know, hop on the vice yourself. China's closed. (laughs) he was a genius (laughs) he was and they I'm sure they really sucked but uh he was he got me and I never lost interest I mean it's still it was just embedded in me and it was really it was cool and my mom was like that too in a way that she she encouraged the behavior also and she she was a really good woodworker and she built me a fly tying room in my bedroom when I was about I don't know, twelve, thirteen. And we made the drawers and made all the things and you know, and she corked my walls so I could hang all the shit on the walls and and it was just really cool. And, you know, back then's before internet and not much TV and all that crap. And man, I just was burrowed in like a tick all the time in that fly time. And in the Great Lakes, you got a long winters, you know, as you know, like in DC. And so it was pretty cool. You know, they both helped out immensely.
1: Was it your dream to be a professional angler? I mean, you, you're spending all that time and on, on the vice and in the water. Were you thinking, I want to do this when I, when I grow up, I want to be a famous angler, especially knowing that your dad had dabbled in it?
2: Not really. I don't think it was, uh, you know, I don't think there was such a thing really that ju- it, there was and there was, it was just beginning. And I was very fortunate. I, I think that what really blew up fly fishing way before the movie was selective trout and trout strategies and uh, Swisher and Richards. And that all happened by my home on the Osable in Michigan. And by the way, it's not us. that's New York. It's Osable in Michigan. And so same spelling. <laughs> and so I, I was... I was fortunate that I think my no- mom knew I was going to have issues growing up being on Psycho. And, and she encouraged and she would get me to these places and they would take me to these fly tying things. And previous to that, I don't really think there was a lot of if you lived in the Rocky Mountains, you might have dreamed of being a guide because there was a little bit of it, but not before the 70s. That really blew up our industry. And so I'm in high school then. Right. And well, at that point, I've been in junior high. But uh, it was somewhere in, in my, you know, in my late teens, I started realizing I was a taxidermist, too. And there was a few people in Michigan that were guiding. And I started realizing that it might be the whole famous fly fishing thing, whatever that is that was never on the radar it was more can i actually make a living i I left a job i worked for shell oil it was a very great job and i think i was one of the first people that ever left shell oil and and this is how new fly fishing was because i told my foreman uh that i was leaving to start a fly shop and he said to me what are you going to do with them I think he thought I was going to raise flies. And and this guy actually fly fished, but he had never heard the term fly shop. You had bait shops and you had tackle shops, but you did not have fly shops. And the the thought of leaving a company like that was pretty crazy, especially to do something like that. But uh, I, I don't think it came to fruition in my mind, like yes, I can do this until probably the early eighty, you know, like eighty. I was—I'd already opened a fly shop. About eighty, I opened my first fly shop out of my house, and my tax—I had a guide business, my taxidermy business, and my you know potential fly shop. It was started out very small, and and it was just that dream. I, it was somewhere in high school. I thought, "Why? Well, I wonder if you could do this." But there was no real. Nothing to look at and say, yeah, you know. Here's it. There was a couple of them in Michigan, but one was part time. That was Gates, where all the selective trout and trout strategies, all that happened at Gates al-saba Lodge. And and then there was a shop in Grand Rapids, uh, Thornapple Orvis, which was Dick Pope's place and uh, Dick and Nancy Pope's. And, but it was a really affluent, you know, kind of upscale Orvis thing, and didn't really fit. It was a nice shop, I and mean, it still is probably. I don't, I don't know if it's still there or not, but it wasn't something that you could aspire because you didn't know there was nothing to look at and say, Oh yeah. You know, there was a few out West, but they're sure weren't around us. And the ones out in Pennsylvania where it all really started, they were really small time kind of in the beginning. And so, but about, I'd say about 19, I was like, yeah, this is going to happen and just went. And, and I still worked at Shell. I was doing it part time. And, and then uh, when I, probably twenty one to i uh, I just said I'm going and see, and then I got a couple good breaks with uh I was guiding John Randolph uh you know for better fly fishermen, and things just kind of started falling into place, you know one little piece at a time
1: now you were tying all your own flies, I'm assuming,
2: yeah, pretty much yeah we did. T- you know the the the, you know that the national tying thing, the not national but uh, royalty tying thing, didn't start until the '80s, and so it wasn't really something. You know, being a uh, like today, you know, you can make a living on royalty tying, and you couldn't do that then. And so, and, and we did, and the sales, like where I was in Michigan, steelhead guiding was pretty. I mean that we did we we did dry flies and steelhead. Everybody thinks of me as a as a streamer guy, right? Hell, I didn't start. I did twenty years of guiding where all we did was dry fly and steelhead. Period. And yeah. and so there was no streamer game and nymph. There were fly shops that wouldn't sell nymphs. I mean that's that's it was you fish dry flies and and in our, in my region it was predominantly the hex hatch. And so you're talking about three and a half weeks of night fishing for the most part. And that's what every, that'd be probably what 80% of the fly anglers did. And so our fly sales, I I sell more flies out of my shop here in one bin that big in a season than I did in, in my shop back in the first 15 years out of all the flies. I mean, I could sell five hundred dozen of a fly here, and I might not sell that many in the whole year. When when I started, it just they weren't there. Steelhead flies, you know, especially because if you were nymph fishing, you know, the swing thing hadn't really started so much in the Great Lakes until as I was leaving. So and there's a lot of timber, as you know, and a lot of things to lose flies on. So you would lose, you could use flies for steelhead and salmon, but for trout wise there wasn't the game. And so it was pretty easy to keep up, you know, you had the winners, but I still bought flies too, but not like back then. You might do 500 dozen flies a season, you know, or a thousand dozen. Well, you could keep up with some of that, but, uh, so, you know, we tied most of our, and we just, des- I designed tons, but even back then, even in the early eighties, I was having them shipped off, you know, to be made. And then, and we had a lot, I have a lot of flies that people don't know are mine. For example, the, the Troutsman hexes, that fly, that hex fly was about the only nationally produced fly there was for shit, almost 15 years. But there were no royalties then. So it really didn't matter that it had your name on it. Who cares? You know, your buddies knew it was your fly. That's all you gave a shit about. And and you tied them too. Well, then, and I think it was 84 and royalties came out, things changed in a hurry. Then you did want your flies out and you did want them and ca- you wanted your name on them and you wanted to be, again, it's like, it, I should be talking about the early 1900s, but is this is in the 80s. Is this stuff starting to blow up? And uh, just a lot of right place at the right time stuff, you know?
1: Who started that? Was that um
2: I think Mackenzie was the first to start it, and then Umpqua followed up because they kind of – it was Umpqua – I think the Blacks are the ones that that started it, but Mackenzie was the first one I went with. But I think it was Umpqua with the Black brothers that uh, started it. It was – yeah, it was pretty revolutionary. There's a lot of us out there that are really thankful. <laughs> because otherwise, you know, your your flies would be sitting in your bins, you know. And you. that was kind of the old school guide. You know, you had your secret flies and your secret this and your secret that. And everything was about the guide and his fly and her fly. There weren't very many guides back then. Uh, a couple. But it was... It just it, things changed radically in the mid 80s. And then, of course, that movie came out and, and things really changed. <laughs> Boom! <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was something.
1: <laughs> I think that's one of the things that's so interesting to me about your career and your evolution as an angler and as a business person is that. You are so widely recognized as a like a brown trout, especially streamer guy and an, an innovator. But I know that a little bit about your history, mm-hmm. not, not a lot. That's one of the reasons why we're sitting here today, but I do know about the dry flies and the steelhead and the swinging. And yet you've chosen very deliberately to be where you are today. And I'd love to pick through why that is, if that's okay. Sure. Let's start with just with the dries first before we go into into swinging. So with dry fly fishing, at the time when you made your fly, um, what was it called again? Your signature? The
2: the Troutsman Hex. That was my my first fly shop was the Troutsman. And so that's what I named. A lot of my flies had something to do with that, you know, just like a Troutsman Drake. And so it was supposed to be unique to the shop because there was no such thing as a royalty tire. So the thought of them going out nationally really didn't, that wasn't really in your wheelhouse, you know, it was your shop, your flies, what makes you unique. And so that's how we did it.
1: So how can you be innovative with that sort of pattern? Or the second part, I guess, of my question is, are you only being innovative so as so much to brand yourself, like you had just mentioned?
2: Uh, Well, I think in the early days, You were unique to yourself and your shop. You were branding for your shop because the likelihood of your flies getting much more than a couple counties away was pretty limited, right? And unless you were unique, you had a a unique – you asked me a question previous to that, how I got out here, and that would have been Joe Brooks and his book, Trout – which I have still, I am such a dork. I have pictures of that book on my cell phone. I have a picture of Joe Brooks landing a big brown in the cover of the book. And I never, he is why I'm here. And so if you were fortunate enough to have a Joe Brooks in your life, put your flies in his book or something like that, like Gavin's Muddler Minnow or something like that, you had an opportunity maybe down the line. But for the most part, for the normal people, You were going to be local and, you know, you were going to maybe in your state, maybe you jump a county or a state line, but likely as not. It was your branding for yourself. And then as things went national and even then, I wasn't uh, I was pretty stoked to see my name and, you know, my fly, not my name, because it didn't say uh, my name in there. It just said Troutsman. But it was pretty cool to see it. And then. In the '80s, when I started writing for Fly Fisherman, that's when I saw the national branding. But it still was not—you, there wasn't. Your 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 flies would be somewhat regional, no matter what. It took a while before that, you know, carried on and you started. But my, you know, my fly design was solely for my clients, and and that's and I get asked this on my YouTube stuff daily. You know, how do you how do you, you know? And you'll see, you can tell the people that are asking, how do you design for money and stuff like that. And that's never, not now, then, or before it was ever a part of my life. It was, I, I design flies watching you fish or as, you know, my client or whoever. And so you're a great angler and I watch you throw my fly. And I'm wondering, you know, well, you can make it swim, but what about this person? The next person gets in my boat, they don't make it swim so well. And what would I do to change it, to make it do what it should? And so, and then, and then just the pure fun of designing flies. I've told lots of people, I, I'm not a flies only guy. I love gear fishing. I absolutely love bass fishing. I love all types of fishing, excluded rods without reels. Uh, (laughs) That's just kidding. Don't don't call in on the hate game, (laughs) but If I could have designed lures in the old days, I'm not so certain I wouldn't have gone that route. I just have, you know, have my dad been a gear guy and showed me how to carve a plug? I don't know. But I know I love this design thing. And so the design aspect, especially today, uh, there are so many great tires. And now it's more about what can you do to make something better, not knock off, not... I mean, the whole thought of making a fly just to make money on it is so – it's not good.
1: Yeah. Well, that's what I'm wondering is let's just look specifically at the, at the hex that you made. Were mm-hmm. you trying to make the hex different – just for the shop or was there actually something that you could do to make it better? Like what sort of, what qualities did you add to make the hex like, you know, your hex be new and improved? And I asked this only because I can, I can see it clearly with your streamers, but with something like a, a hex, mm-hmm. what would you have done to have made it, made it better?
2: Well, I would love to say that I had some genius idea, but I was really trying to knock off one of my mentors fly and I couldn't do it and I didn't do it well. And I changed the body. And and it was uh, it had nothing to do. I would love to say I had some stroke of genius for this, but uh, I was trying to he had a yellow body underneath his most tax flies have deer hair on the back. They have like a two part body and he used yellow monochord on the hook to cover the hook to go back, put the tail on. And then he came forward and he wrapped his body back and he was trying to cover the entire hook. And there was a little stripe of yellow underneath it that he didn't get the hair pulled around. Probably, I think by mistake. And I kept trying to mimic that with something. And I thought it was hair and it wasn't. And so I did a reverse bucktail. I tied the tail in and I put bucktail by the tips out the back, moved forward, put the Pulled the underbelly bucktail and made this beautiful little body about like the color of a hex. And then I figurated the deer hair on top and gave it that two tone effect. And that was very accurate to the hex itself, right? And I thought it looked better and kept working on that because most of the bodies were monotone, they weren't two toned. And so that was kind of the beginning. And I realized, and then just it was just tweaking trying to make it better trying to make for my clients right and me you know and i because i did a ton of fishing for myself i mean we didn't guiding back then man if you had three trips a week that would have been something and i would chase that hatch it was really kind of what got me going in the whole business and i would chase that maybe six weeks you know, look, going all over the state, trying to find them where they were. So I was trying to find flies that were unique for, you know, that worked. I mean, not just, there was no, the beauty of it then was there was no monetary uh, influence on you uh, other than the handful. It was more, your flies work better. And that's why I did it. And then your ego gets in there because you want your flies to work better. And you don't want to, every fly designer on the planet, I, I can't tell you, how many hundreds of anglers tires I deal with annually? And and they never they show you their fly and they lead with this fly's the greatest. Every everybody's is the greatest, right? And they say, Well, it's the greatest when somebody that really sucks can catch fish on it. And that's when your fly is the greatest. Not because you can take it out to your water. And so as a guide, you realize I used to hear this from old people my age, <laughs> then the, they would always say, I've been fishing this river for 30 years. What that means is for one or two weekends a year for 30 years that they'd fished it, right? Maybe four or five days a year. and But they have been there 30 years, right? They're thick and thin. And so it was a little intimidating. And then you'd get these anglers out and go, wow. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well." <laughs> You've been fishing it, but not very well. And so, (laughs) but of course you can't. Your job as a guide is not to take great anglers fishing. It's to take average anglers and make them great. And if you think your job is to take people that are great out, you're probably a shit guide. You know, you, you need to be a teacher. And so my flies had to be a representation of my teaching skills and something that was unique to yourself and that helped your angler. And helping anglers is what the difference was. And I think we lose a little bit of that now because there's monetary things with the flies. And it's not quite as true to your sport or your love of this stuff as it is as it was then. Because, you know, and, and even then, though, there's a little of that because you just, you'd be tying flies for people. and But you really, it was more for me, at least, it was more the fact that they wanted your fly you know, because it worked not because you're somebody it was because your fly works, which is pretty cool. And that's still today. That's still, you know, people are always asking me, why don't you do this? I said, it's been done. I don't, I can't, I don't have a better fly. <laughs> you know, it's like, I don't have a better one. I don't, I, I don't have anything in my mind. I'm actually going to knock it off. Although I did knock Russ Madden's uh, circus peanut off on purpose I still think it's one of the best flies in the world. And I tied one called the peanut envy and because I loved his flies. Russ is like a brother to me and like a little brother. He worked for me and then bought my store in, in Michigan, but, uh, he came up, he was the, he's one of the most innovative tires ever. And he's the only fly I really know I knocked off and I did it on purpose because I had, I had circus peanut envy. <laughs> it was so good, and so and I don't know if I ever made it better. I made it. It was close, but not better. And it was it was kind of a joke. But uh, it's uh, he he was he was the first guy I ever saw put rubber legs in a streamer for on purpose. He's a he's a very unique cat and a phenomenal angler. But uh, anyway. I digress. Well, so. you you've
1: just given me like a solid ten questions. My brain is spinning right now with questions to <laughs> ask you, but um, I'll I'll pick at them slowly. So, if I were to go back then to your timeline when you were when you had your shop, um, how long did you did you fish like that for primarily before starting to really toy around with the streamer fishing?
2: About twenty. Uh, Well, the streamer thing didn't come out until the 90s, you know, the the late, the mid 90s. And so, yeah, and and really very little streamer fishing. Um, Actually, most of the streamer fishing was done at night, but probably 90, it was, it was a three or four fold thing that happened, but part of it was the incredible growth of the salmon fishery in Lake Michigan and Lake and the Great Lakes and the number of uh uh, not my favorite style of angler showed up and so just hordes of idiots and not necessarily during the snagging seasons which got banned in the 80s it was just just another breed of cat showed up to harvest these fish and it got so busy so i mean i'd run the pm and you know going out at four in the morning so that we could get maybe two runs and it was just a shit show and I couldn't I just couldn't it was irritating as hell and I <clears throat> I I started leaning towards I was watching a bass show and uh, Larry Nixon was walking the dog and he said something to the effect of it was a reactionary thing and it really tweaked me and I started playing around and and so then I I, I told all my clients i forget what pissed me off that day but i had just had i I was done i was never throwing and i was never fishing for a salmon again in my life and i just i had had it and i had hired a new guide and i said you know what i'm out and i told all my clients i have this idea i'm going to write this book and you're my guinea pigs if you want to fish with me we have rules we fish nothing but streamers I don't care. We don't fish hatches. We don't nymph fish. Uh, and at one o'clock, we take a 15 minute nap. And if you don't want to do that, y'all can fish for somebody else. You, you
1: started this. <laughs> yeah, You're I love the it. reason for my napping American, <laughs> my American clients are the only ones. Thank who you. So,
2: oh, I love it. <laughs> you know, and, and right after lunch, a human being should stop and take a siesta. I do it as a meditation. And so, and how I tell since I was in my 20s and I've done this 13 minute thing. I do it at seminars. I do it everywhere. Shit. Out sometimes I think I can do it driving. But I would tell I would tell these, and they were like giving me shit about being old. And I think I was probably 30. I don't know. Uh, <clears throat> but I said, well, that's the rule. This is what we're going to do. And you're going to be my guinea pigs. And God, it was so cool because. Uh, you know, imagine having every river you ever wanted that no one's ever thrown a streamer in in the daytime. And, man, things happen so fast. And we realized, you know, very early on, well, there's something to this. And so no one had people passively swung streamers like for steelhead, but they didn't actively motivate their fish to do something. And so it that and then that changed everything. That was in 90. I don't remember when the book came out, 98 or something like that. It was mid nineties, but before that, almost exclusively dry fly. Occasionally we would throw these little tiny streamers like uh, gray ghosts, you know, like a size four gray ghost was just, oh my God, that thing's grotesquely huge. (laughs) Now it's not a, now it's not a wing on your trailer fly, you know? And so it was I remember when the zookeeper came out, people would see it and they would always say, oh My God, what's that? A pike fly? You know, and it's like a size six. Right. And <laughs> you know, shit, we got flies now that are three or four of those hooked together. Yeah. And so, you know, but it just that's how it went down. And and our seasons were much shorter for the streamer thing has lengthened our streamers from a guide perspective immensely. You know, earlier and later in the seasons and and in Michigan, our hatches were terrible. You know, we had night hatches. We didn't have day hatches that would give you we – we have them. They just weren't – I mean, I, I was out today taking a walk, and there's six inches of fresh snow, and I've got fish-eating midges in every pool I stop in on the Madison. And so in, in Michigan, I had, I'd have sulfurs and then Hendrickson's, and those were my day bugs, you know, and where I could go out. And even then, they weren't that great. You know, on occasion they were, but for the most part, we had to do a lot of attractor style fishing and a lot of, uh, we did a lot of terrestrial fishing and, which was cool. And a lot of wet flies, actually traditional wets. We did a lot of, you know, soft tackles and traditional, like, you know, lead wing coachmen and hairs ears and cow dungs and, and just the, the old. I mean, that's how I grew up was on that, on this wet fly swing, uh, and then the dry fly thing showed up later.
1: Okay, so you're still back east at that time, mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: and the streamer revolution. What were you fishing before you were tying your own? Were you when you decided that you were going to dive full on into this? Were you you were you using the wooly bugger as inspiration? Was there a fly that you had tried before, apart from the gray ghost, or was there truly nothing and you started tying?
2: There was truly nothing. There was just nothing. We had gray ghosts and I used to fish a big gray ghost and I had tied big bucktails and I did them for, uh, actually there's my first fly. It's called the aggravated assault. And I used it as a, (laughs) it was a five inch bucktail. I used it for steelhead. I tried it for brown trout, uh, in the, in the great lakes, in the rivers, but never a thought of using it for trout ever. And so then we fast forward and we're throwing, we, we were actually throwing, we just took the flies and put them on Carrie Stevens trolling hooks and would take the same fly, like a stacked blonde. That my, the stacked blonde is a tribute to Joe Brooks' Platinum Blonde series, which was done in the 50s, which I tied like shit. And I could not tie one that looked like the flies in the book. And when I did, they didn't swim right. And so there's a hook called the keel hook, which was invented in Michigan. Uh, I think Dick Pope invented it. But then Bing McClellan and Burke Flexler in Traverse City became famous for it. And I, I had these hooks, and they're just kind of bent, and they're, and they're crooked, right? And I started stacking bucktail on those because I could get this big, fat fly and four or five inches long. But it was really light because we weren't into the wet fly or the wet lines then. Yeah, that came shortly after, but, and so there were no flies, and then uh, if there, there was one in Michigan, it was called the Houghton Lake Special, but it was still a relatively small fly, but it was, but it was, and it was a redheaded stepchild, nobody fished it unless, they just always said the same shit, you know, there's, uh, well, there's nothing was happening, so I put on this streamer, like, you know, somebody put their hand in a vice and it was awful it was and so there really was nothing and frankly the zoo cougar came out i had i saw this houghton lake special and i had a friend whose name was tom noms and another friend that probably in my mind the greatest angler that i've ever known in my life, name dave ellis and dave ellis sent to new zealand for these flies in the 60s and they were called Matukas. Back then they were called New Zealand streamers and they were Matukas. And he had some, he ordered them out of Outdoor Life. And Tom Noms was the guy who I was copying his hex fly, by the way. Ah. He gave one to Tom. And Tom put was a very good tire and he put a deer hair head on it. It eventually morphed into the Whitlock Sculpin. But I remembered that fly and and those flies... Worked okay. And then the ZooCougar came out. The ZooCougar came out quite a while before all this, actually. But it didn't really, I'm not sure how it came to be. I remember tying it, but, and what I was trying to do, but it didn't necessarily. And then when I went full on, I think I threw it out and swung it once or twice or something. And as I started progressing into this active fast retrieve and, set, you know, cross stream retrieves, no more tail first stuff. Uh, all, I believe it was Russ Madden and I, I'm certain Russ was very integral in all the streamer designs. I mean, he, he's got a, he, he's got a screwed up brain. He, his brain just, just is out. He comes up with the greatest flies. <laughs> oh my God. And it, but the two of us, you know, we were throwing the the big flies and Russ came to work for me as he was a kid, 18 or so, 19 but he had this creative, this incredibly creative mind, and I'm doing this stuff, and I bring him on, and we just kind of the cat came flying out of the bag. Shit just started coming off the vise. We started with those big hooks on the Kerry Stevens, and we were doing wooly buggers with hair heads, which were turned into the wooly sculpt, which was kind of a kickoff of Ed Shink's fly, and but we were doing them five inches long, and we kept seeing the fish eat the heads of those things. Huge fish. I mean, gay fish were just giants. Nobody had ever done anything like this for them. But I had a lot. I fished a lot of lures. I fished a lot of crankbaits for browns. Right. And I knew what they would do to that. So we started kind of build this stuff up. And then it just, man, it just started happening. And that's when we knew, holy shit, this this is real. You know, this is this isn't a fluke. This wasn't a couple of days. This is this is happening and things are changing. And that's when we said, you know, the, the, the book came out with Bob and I, and so uh, Bob Linzeman, and it was that, that the flies were non-existent and, and what we were doing, I, I kind of skipped that when we had those big hooks and we saw the fish eating their heads, we shortened and articulated those flies to get them to eat the front hook. And it had very little to do with action and size. Because in a lot of respects, our flies were as big then as they are now, but they're on this huge hook, you know, five inches long, 11X and 12X and 14X hooks, and they kept clobbering them. We couldn't hook them. You know, they'd hold on to them and just shake them and you just couldn't hook them. And, and so we started short shanking to get the hook up front. Then the TNA bunker, well, the, the original was the TNA, then the TNA bunker, which was a alewife pattern. For the great lakes and that you know, just trying to mimic that and and make it swim in the little rainbow and then russ's circus peanut and then that thing i mean holy shit let's have fly something still is and so it, it just things just kept coming along and then the the woolly sculpting you know the sex dungeon came off of that adding rubber legs because of rust throw. when russ threw that first fly down that circus peanut. And I was working on the dungeon then. I just couldn't get it to come together. It was, I was trying to do a woolly Scope and it is all right. Things are happening. And I remember throwing down him, throwing down that electric green circus peanut and these goddamn legs go flopping all over the place. And (laughs) and he, and he says, I didn't want to f but I didn't want to mess around with all that hair shit. And he just palmered chenille over the head, over the eyes. And I said, Jesus Christ, what is that thing? A clown car? He goes, No, it's a circus peanut. <laughs> I go, Oh my God. And we took that thing out. I swear to God, it had something that fish were running 10 feet to eat that fly. And I, I had never seen I don't I still never had a fly, I think, that was that out of the box, that perfect and that great. I mean, as that fly it was. And so the dungeons coming along, and other ones are coming. Start throwing rubber legs because of rust doing it, and you know, then things just kept going. They went crazy.
1: (laughs) What was the mentality of trout then at the time? Because it seems obvious to me, sitting back now, that clearly a trout would eat a smaller trout or a sculpin or a frog. But at the time, were people just was the widely believed? Did people just believe that they only ate? Flies and bugs. Oh yeah,
2: yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, now they don't. They believe they'd eat him, but it was truly a second-class citizen. It was. It was not something that you did. People just didn't do it, and and in a lot of ways, they kind of shunned it. I mean, when I moved to Montana and I moved on the Madison River and opened my shop. I would guess 95% of the guides I met the first year told me it's too bad they don't eat streamers on this river, as have people in every country in the world told me, as they did on the White River for 20 years before I got to the, before I used, I started fishing the White in 1982, and they told me they wouldn't eat them and in the fly shops. Now they got the streamer love fest, everything's great, right? And it's like, I mean, all over I've been on, I don't name me a country. I mean, they've told me they won't eat them. They, I mean, they, it's just, it's getting out of people's comfort zone. Right. And so you fought it. And and I still do. I mean, it's, I'll go places still and they'll be like, well, our fish don't do that. Actually in New Zealand, uh, Nick, my buddy, Nick has a lot. Well, I had crinkly crank outfitters and Nick King, and he worked for me. And he would tell me how that, and I had never been there, that they wouldn't eat streamers here. And then Dr. Petruzzi went down there, who is a superstar. Oh, my God, is he good. And he pretty much cleaned out the river. And Nick calls me and says, uh, caught more fish. That guy caught more fish in a day than any group's ever caught in a week. Yeah. He goes, who is he? I go, he's a good. Remember when you told me they wouldn't eat streamers and they'd scare all your fish away? He says, your fish didn't get that big eating that goddamn one mayfly that floats by every 20 minutes. You got shit hatches. Where do you think they get big? Right. Yeah. And then as it progressed, people started realizing that, you know, there's that, that zone where fish quit eating bugs in some places you'll still like, you know, New Zealand and stuff, and, and even here on a rare occasion, you'll see these fish eat a bug, but for, after about 22, 24 inches, those fish become pretty much meat eaters. I and mean, you just even it's really rare to see a 25 inch fish eat a bug. I mean, it's got to be real biomass. You know, you've got to add a hex hatch or a cicada or, or salmon fly. And even then, for every one of those fish that does it, 100 eat, eat the streamer. And people are getting hip to it. And, and I think some of it is a lot of it's social media for sure, but I think there's also a slight trend towards anglers that don't, aren't just fly only. And, you know,
1: thank God. It,
2: yeah. I mean, because they learn it. We,
1: we all started out as, I mean, I, I was, a, I started yeah. out a bait angler. I still love fishing sure. a spoon. I'm a dirty, nasty spoon angler and soft, uh, soft plastics.
2: <laughs> oh my God. If I could have, if you were going to feed yourself on, if I could have a soft plastic swim bait with a three 16 jig head, I could catch every goddamn fish in this river. <laughs> and I mean, and I have my, when my buddies show up, right. I got these ten buddies that we grew up together, and we're all still tight as skin on a grape. And one's a liberal, so we don't talk to him as much. But the other ones all show up here, and, <laughs> and they they all want to learn to fly fish. I says, "You're out of your freaking mind!" I says, "You had forty years to learn to do this shit. I'm not teaching you now." I says, "Here's your spinning rod. Here's your swim baits. You'll catch more fish than anybody, and go." right? And they just clobber it and it's all fun. I still, I go, when we go, I don't, I like bait fishing. I like, you know, I like everything. It's funny because you can go to the saltwater and you can bait fish and nobody, nobody's mad at you. Where fish will, that'll eat anything, right? And yet if you throw bait something here, you are like the antichrist. And it's like, it's still fun. There's still ways to do it without hurting your fish and all that. But I mean, one of the people, I get this question, do you miss Michigan? And I said, well, I miss the shadows because I love the shadows that are back there with all the trees and stuff. And one time I was doing a podcast or something or an interview somebody, and I says, I really miss dunking a grasshopper off a grass bank with my in a creek. And they cut. They're just like, what'd you say? <laughs> I said, yeah, you know, catch a grasshopper and hook it on a hook. I says, they do the craziest eats for those things. Uh, it was just fun. You know, I mean, I think we're getting a little of that coming back where people are, you know, they're seeing shows and people aren't just this or just that. And they're willing to experiment a little bit and see that there's fun in all of them. And, you know, it's, it, it, there's ways to make all of them. I mean, they're all worried about the treble hook or this, well, put a single hook on it. You're going to hurt anything. I'll, You'll be just fine. Right. And, or pinch them all down, whatever. And so I, I think that has a lot to do with the streamer thing is that when I, to tell you the truth, I took an amazing amount of backlash from the, uh, the original Umpco guys. Cause I was, um, I had a lot of flies with Umpco in, in the early days. It was me and Mike Mercer with the, had the, the, you know, as the run for who had more flies. And when I came out with the articulated stuff, they all they said they were all gonna get brained. That yeah, that right. back hook would brain the flies. Says, they don't need the back hook anyway, but but I said, How the hell is that gonna happen? And after 25 years, I'm still not seeing this braining. I brain more fish, if you want to call it hooking them where their brain is, dry fly fishing when they come up and refuse it and I still snag them, you know. I've brained a lot of steelhead on a swing. I can tell you that where I've hooked them in the top of the head, nowhere near their freaking brain. I mean, the thought that you're going to pierce all the way through and the fish is going to freeze up dead. (laughs) Well, it's funny. I have a number
1: of thoughts on that, Kelly. So like when I used to fish spoons, obviously, you know, you know, the Gibbs spoons Mm. that came with those enormous hooks. So I had, you know, my pliers, my split ring pliers. I'd sit there. I'd replace all my hooks. And I never, because I would admittedly, quote unquote, brain them with a big hook, but not mm-hmm. with a smaller hook, even if it was set just as far back. So do you think it's the placement of the hook or do you think it's the size of the hook that results in a, you know, a braining or a deep tongue set?
2: I, I can tell you, I have tongue hooked way more steelhead on a dry fly swing than any fly I've ever fished in BC. Mich- I don't well, I've never did it. I did a lot in BC, but and, and a lot more on small hooks that they can inhale, but I, the single hook on the spoon thing, and same with uh, I, I personally believe that they, they hit the head of, this, of everything. Now, steelhead have a little bit of different deal because they're squid eaters, and they inhale fish a little bit differently in some respects sometimes than a trout does. A trout almost never has the ability to bite this. And eat it. And so, like when people say they, they're hitting the tail, juvenile fish will they're stupid. They're they're like 13-year-old boys, right? They're just stupid. They just go, they'll crack at it, they're like, What is it? They're playing like a cat does with a, a kitten will play with things different than a big cat, right? They're learning, they're just they're coming around. But a real fish, they have to stun that and eat it. And if it's a five-inch long spoon or body bait, they have to hit that. And a trout actually has to hold it, kill it, and then eat it. It does not get to just go gulp like it does a fly. Now, at eating a dry fly, I can't tell you how many thousands of fish I probably killed with hexes, eating them at night because they come up and inhale it, right? And it's a big hook. It's the same size. It's a 3X long streamer hook is what we tie on. And so you get them down the gullet a lot. And so on the spoons and the bigger, like on the intruder styles and stuff like that, where they eat it. The one thing about a steelhead, especially if it's coming, now I never throw my fly's tail first to a fish. And so, but with a steelhead and you're swinging and you know, you can always tell when they hit, you, you know, when you just go tight, that fish took your fly. He sucked the fly in like he would a squid. When you get a thump on your rod well, that, you know, if uh, you, to me, the, a truly great swing angler can tell when he gets what I call the push. My whole life, when you're swinging and your line goes slack, well, it doesn't go slack for a reason. The fish has pushed your fly. Better set the goddamn hook, right? So, but when you're going long and all of a sudden, whoa, you get thumped. That fish hit you sideways. It's the only way it can happen. You had to go tight on your line, and so hook placement becomes a little different on that. The big hooks, I, I find them to be a disadvantage personally, a great disadvantage, and quite frankly, the same with treble hooks. I was
1: just going to say the of, same thing. We experiment. Sorry to cut you off this time. It, we experiment right. in Norway. I fish a single. My husband fishes a, tr- a treble, and I feel mm-hmm. like I see more fish dropped on trebles than I do on a single yep. single hook.
2: Absolutely. I had lots of friends in the Great Lakes who fished for a living. For tour boats, right, guy charters. So you would go out and you would have to catch your limit, come in, and you try to do this multiple times. And so many of those anglers started going, taking their trebles up because they'll bite that, and they've got hooks everywhere, but they don't really get hooked by all of them. Not people that never fish gear don't. They always say the same shit about treble hooks. Oh, they're going to tear these fish apart. I said, well, they'll come off more than they they do anything. And most of my friends in the Great Lakes would go to single hooks because they'd actually hook the fish, right? They would get a just like you and your husband in Norway. Uh, and I saw lots of, I mean, I, I converted almost all my spoons. I used to fish a lot of crocodiles and a lot of Cleos, and I converted virtually all of them to single hook and had a far better. I didn't get that throwing the thing, they jump and throw the hook. And with treble hooks, I had it happen all the time. Mm-hmm. And the same with with our flies, with these the big hooks com- compared to the single, the the shorter front hooks. When we went to those shorter, we used to get a lot of those fish in the outside of the face, like you zipped them. They bash the head, and then they and back and forth, and they'd come undone. And when we went to the shorter hook, always right in the front of the mouth, right where you wanted it, right in the end of the face, and you're solid. And so it's the same thing. It was a smaller hook. As far as inhaling them, I, I, you know, I I so rarely get a fish. It's always right there, right where it, because you set the hook so hard, you know, and I don't know. It's still a blood sport, too. There's only so much you can do to stop all this. But uh, the right size hook, I think, makes a big, and it it for sure makes a big difference in getting the fish landed Mm -hmm. As shorter shanks.
1: Yep, absolutely. So that's interesting about the eye because I always say the same thing. I've, I've seen various footage. Have you seen any of the John McMillan footage? Mm-hmm. So John McMillan, he snorkels and he's got this amazing footage and he'll show fish just almost suck. I don't know how they move so fast, honestly, but it's right at mm-hmm. the eye of the bait fish that they're taking. So. Yeah. I always had used jungle cock and my flies just for vanity. I thought they looked nice, but right. after seeing the yes. footage mm-hmm. from John, I've I've switched. And now I I mean I, I I definitely put eyes on all my flies. Do you put eyes on your flies?
2: Yes, almost all of them, and it's a lot of that reason. It's a target, and you know most of the most of the bait fish these fish have to eat have spiny dorsals, or even the and they can eat them backwards.
1: Coming up, we dive into the future of our sport, what your fly is really doing underwater, and If Kelly is a pervert again, thank you to great fishing adventures of Australia for making this episode possible. If you're planning a visit to Australia, which I highly recommend, I cannot emphasize enough that you should check out australia.com forward slash fishing. When I followed my husband down here, I couldn't believe the opportunity I was witnessing huge fish, experienced guides, countless species. Australia is home to some of the most diverse quality fisheries on our planet. Great Fishing Adventures of Australia brings together some of Australia's best fishing operators to collectively raise the profile of Australia as a world-class fishing destination. Learn more by visiting australia.com forward slash fishing. Let me dive into proportions with you. I think this is really interesting. And now that I know that you're also a gear angler, that Mm -hmm. just opens up a whole new can of worms for me, because that makes sense. Uh, I had read something that you done I think it was mid current and you had explained and the way that you like your materials in the front versus the back is you like to have I think you had said water pushing materials in the front and mm-hmm. movement in the back Correct. and a, a lot mm-hmm. of bait jigs are mm-hmm. like that like when I used to tie my my marabou jigs and stuff it was the same sort of thing so can you just explain Uh, particularly when it comes to stripping we'll talk about swinging later but what is your why do you prefer a hard material in the front versus a flowing material in the back
2: well a lot of it has to do with how the too many angler or design fly guys girls designers whatever they like they'll they'll test flies in these little tubes and stuff or with a spinning rod you do not have that ability when you're stripping a fly you have to animate the fly with your rod or if you're stripping by hand and you know pulling on the rope your fly doesn't get to travel in a plane that's really flat and so you're, it's an erratic movement right and so it, as you're coming across stream and not using the current to move your fly for you and so you well that's some of it but i like to have multiple things one probably the least known it's been known by gear english forever it's a acoustic footprint but it's it's a hertz wavelength and a hertz wavelength this uh, fish track that's why trout don't need light they eat in dirty water just as well as they do in clean water i mean you want to see an exodus of anglers come to montana and let the water get dirty and nobody will fish and yet that's when the fish really put on the feed bag that's a, and they do that by d- vibration detection the brown trout's lateral line is probably the most sensitive I read a thing called the Complete Brown Trout once where it said that the NASA had never built a instrument for vibration detective that was even close to as uh, sensitive as the lateral line of a brown trout. In theory, a brown trout can feel a pea hit the ground on solid ground 50 feet from the river. Thankfully, it cannot use its brain to go, oh, shit, that's somebody walking up here. But they can detect through Hertz wavelength, hence the fact that a... Spinner works so well, right? A spinner, when you ask somebody what's a spinner look like a minnow, the thing would have to be in a goddamn blender going around to look like a minnow. What are you shitting me? It is like woo-woo-woo-woo. It's it has nothing to do with the freaking look. It has to do with the Hertz wavelength it's producing, and that somewhere between 15, 24, 5, 3 is a is that injury or distress wavelength. And so and they, I, I just, I read something before I wrote that second streamer's book, I was reading about this whole wavelength thing. And they said that this one article, or several actually, but the one in particular said that a trout could detect a, a distress wavelength of a minnow 100 yards upstream from it and 300 yards downstream. Because it's carrying down. And they also are rebuking some of this stuff about blood in the water. Uh, because blood can't move without the current. But the wavelength can. And so there's an awful lot about creel and just other things that, that uh, bait balls and things. And how they move and how fish get to them in the ocean. And in the ocean, they say they can do a distress wavelength a mile away. Now, anybody that's fished saltwater has had dolphin out there flopping around like flipper, doing its thing. And you get us, you know, something on that goes crazy. And all of a sudden, those dolphin that were like a half mile away are sitting beside you, eating whatever it is, or a shark's in there and, I mean, oh, my God, it's instant. Well, they didn't do it by scent. And they came in there by that wavelength. And so we're kind of just barely touching it nowadays, but my flies, I like to have that acoustic thing, that footprint that it pushes that noise out. And that's why I like the bulk of the head, but I don't want, you know, I, I describe it frequently like hitting the brakes with a trailer. The ass end keeps coming at you, right? And so you need the front to stall and the rear end to keep moving. So you get extra movement because that little tiny whip of the tail and then the acceleration of the head pushing, if you can get in that wavelength, you'll have fish coming to investigate that almost instantly. Now, brown trout can go give it some, there's different, you know, most trout, steelhead trout, salmon, salmon it's all of them somewhere in that upper 30s mile an hour, right? I don't know what that is where you live now, kilometers. Just, I have a lodge in the Bahamas, and I'm trying to, you know, when I'm driving down there, I'm like, the hell is a kilometer? I, I grew up next to Canada for crazy. I should, I should know this stuff, right? I'm always up there and I don't. But at 38 miles an hour is what I've read is their maximum. So if you take the fact that the fish is very seldom very deep and the fly hits down, boom, down hits on the water. And it does that, that distress thing that, boom, here's that impact, right, which throws out a wavelength. Now, if a fish is 10 feet from you and he's doing 38 miles an hour, that's that's invisible to the naked eye. And a, a trout can go to maximum velocity in half its body length. So in other words, if you're fishing for a real fish, let's call it 25 inches long and 12 and a half inches, it's doing 38 miles an hour. So it's invisible to you, meaning, boom, he's on it, right? Pow, here I am. And so... The wavelength is part of it, but the push of the water, that pushing, which is throwing that wavelength, rather it's in a distress zone or it's just a 12 or a 10, but it's making the wavelength going down the river, up the river, in the lake, in the ocean, wherever it is, and it's bringing the fish to you. Now, I get that by the impact in that first zone, and then I need that fly to do something where it has the ability to swim and look distressed or swimming, preferably swimming in a panic motion. And I sell the I sell it, right? I don't need a fly that stop, that's it's universally the same material and it seems to pause lifelessly. And hence that was the added attribute to articulating the flies when we started articulating. And by the way, we did not, I did not, and Russ did not invent articulating streamers. Uh, I get credit for that all the time. In my second book, I found somebody sent me a 1954 herders, advanced fly tying, triple articulated streamers, exactly how we do it. (laughs) I've never seen it, but 1954. So as much as I'd love to take credit for it, and I do sometimes if I drank too much, Uh, well, I can take credit for inventing the world, but, uh, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but uh they we didn't invent it but that was one of the the added attributes to the flies was that you get that swim and so and, and if i i've said it a lot of times i don't like tanks and i don't like running them on spinning rods because you don't get the ability you need to turn the wire i'd like to i've seen you do your intruder in one of those tanks it was one of the first times i ever saw it actually it was a great fly and it was in one of those tanks and i said if we could do that with a baffle that started it and stopped it Mm -hmm. like it went like how you're going to do it with your hand and you're retrieving right yeah that's what i need to have happen with my flies because i'm i'm manipulating that fly with my i don't strip i i use my rod and it's a little different but it's still moving starting and stopping the fly and so i need the fly that because it starts and stops, starts and stops, because we don't swing tail first, and so which I did originally, but then I get the ability to see the fly jackknife, and that's the kicker. When the fly jackknifes, that's the that's the seller.
1: So you're moving your rod tip while you're stripping. You're only stripping to get the line the line
2: tight. Correct. I'm I'm stripping. It's a party joke. Don't ever you never strip and jerk at the same time say that three times at a party with three beers uh it's you manipulate the rod and strip the excess and so you jerk the rod strip the excess and so you're always on a tight line but you're never stripping the line against you're you're doing it with your rod tip I, i was doing a seminar once with one of the greatest bass anglers alive named shaw grigsby and there was a bunch of swingers there man these guys are the best I mean, there was like, holy shit. I mean, Van Dam was there and Bill Dance. I mean, some of the old timers and, and Shaw Grigsby, who is still competing. I don't know if he did this year or not, but I mean, in his 60s. Man, when you're in the Bassmasters in your 60s, those, those are the best anglers in the world. I mean, they fish for tens of millions of dollars. If any moron could do it the top guys wouldn't always be there because they have to qualify, right? And so I said to Shaw Grigsby at this, it was a seminar in Michigan, and I said, what's the difference between the top 10? Because in bass, BSS, or there's a lot of tournaments now, but you start with millions of anglers, and the same caps end up at the top, right? And I said, what's the difference between them? And he's without blinking. April, I'm telling you, I don't even think he got a breath out. He must have been asked this before, and he said, "It's their ability to move their lures with the rods and not their reels." And then he walked away from me. <laughs> We're going to watch, <laughs> but it was like, and it was like, like that's it. And when you watch an angler that's a gear angler, they've got these. I mean, our reels nowadays can have 42 inches of retrieve per per revolution. And you see anglers and you swear they're just reeling it in, right? And it's just that easy. Well, it's not just that easy. And either is streamer fishing. with your When you learn to manipulate the fly with your rod, you become less of a one-trick pony where all you can do is pull the rope and do the same retrieve. Now you can quiver your fly. You can stutter. You can make it do a lot of things you can't do just by pulling on it. And that's playing into that distress thing and not simply throwing it out and just retrieving it. You know, that's one thing. It's, it's good to have that in your quiver, but it's nice to have three or four other ones with you. I probably jig <laughs> fish as much as I do anything with a fly.
1: That just segues me so perfectly into my next question for you. Let's keep it real, Kelly. You seem like you're a the sort of guy who keeps it real. So, just I want you to lay it on me. You're not going to offend me. Nothing you can say can offend me, including your fly names, by the way, which which we'll talk about later. Um, <laughs> Sick sw- childhood. swinging flies, steelhead. Mm-hmm. Do you think we're doing mm-hmm. it wrong? What What are your honest thoughts on how we swing flies for steelhead?
2: No, I'm, and and I am one of you. I mean, I, I I spent a lot of my life up in your neck of the woods, yeah. way back when and started my career actually probably as much steelheading and and quite frankly i think steelhead are a different cat than a trout and i can't tell you how many hours i spent on the dean river trying to get a fish to cross current me a fly and rick it you know come up and and try try to make them do things and i and I could get them to come up and eat a dry fly, which means they're pretty aggressive fish. So you take your bulkly fish, man. They'll come up and just blast them, right? I caught a bulkly fish one time. Man, were we hung over. That was Jerry and I and Mike Trade. Oh, my God, what a day. That's a long story. You got to hear this one someday. You might have heard it with him. But uh, I caught a just smoking hot 11-pound hen, and I screamed for help. Because I saw it eat the fly, and I said to Jerry, holy shit, get down here. Now, I've caught some pretty, I mean, high 40s steelhead on the Kispy ox. This fish was going to be 50 inches. And I'm like, holy shit. And you know, those 11-pounders take off, and this is the single-hand days. And this thing just busts my ass across this river and turns, and I've I got nothing on this fish. And I'm chasing it. And Jerry comes down I never chase fish. And he sees me, and he comes down, and he gets there, and he and he goes, "What is this? It's it's got to be a monster." And he sees it, and he goes, "Are you shitting me?" And it's an eleven pounder. It has a eleven inch Dodger spoon in its face. Eleven inch <laughs> Dodger with a hook the size of your finger. In the side of its face that had eaten in the freaking ocean I had to get. And when I saw it eat my dry fly, I saw the dodger and thought it was its freaking gill plate. (laughs) (laughs) Now, that is an aggressive fish. And yet, I've never been able to get one to come cross stream on me wide open. I've had rolls, but I didn't spend – I kind of quit the steelheading. I get pissed off at your – at the bc thing with that re reg and i just i was just i quit going up but right as i was starting to now i could get some fall fish to come pretty aggressive but still i think they tend to like that more passive swing at least for me i i've never been able to change. i can't say you're doing it wrong because i really don't i haven't steelheaded much in the last 15 years and so and, but when I would, I, I would try these things and it takes somebody like a Tommy Larimer, you're just talking about, it takes these cats that are there a lot. And you've caught enough fish that you're just like the hell with it. I'm going to make them do so. I mean, Hank Brown, I mean, Jesus Christ. i would be like the first guy that swings a, a dry fly at something for God's sake? And they told him he was full of shit for years. Right. <laughs> and then he, he didn't really catch him. I was like, are you kidding me? But I don't know if anybody's doing it wrong. I do. I, I, obviously I, I, I'd, when I would try it, I'd immediately go back and start swinging and I'd catch fish. So no, I don't think it's wrong, <laughs> but I do think to, con- I get a lot of hate mail from the, cause I'll say shit about swinging, not tail first from the steelhead catch, mostly BC people. They'll, I mean, they'll write me and tell me what an idiot I am and how stupid I am. And <laughs> I don't know shit about streamers. One guy wrote me and said, I don't know. Anyway, why don't you admit it? You don't know shit about streamers. You're just a goddamn jig fisherman. And <laughs> I mean, I I love my hate mail. Right? It's all good. And so I just laugh at it. And he and they t- one guy sent me a video of a guy swinging, and the guy keeps pumping his rod and telling me how he's animating his fly. Well, the thing I did different than most anglers is I got in the water and dove a lot, and I dove a lot with people swinging flies at me and jigging flies at me, and I actually know what a fly does underwater. And until you get your lazy ass out and see it, you don't know. And you got to do it. Just like when I was, I did all those hours of diving, looking at fish before I wrote those books. And I was looking for fish and where they were and how they were doing things. And so the same thing with a fly and and knowing that the swing is a swing. And and there's nothing, I just don't do that style of fishing. I I go cross stream. I do virtually all. Reactionary bite fishing with my streamers, unless I'm jig. I was fishing last week when we were supposed to do this. When I went up and fished, and I told you I couldn't. <laughs> and I had a pretty good week. I had I was there four days, but uh, it was a really bright, sunny, low water conditions, and I couldn't get reactionary bites. I could not get fish to. I mean, I I got I got a lot of really really good fish. And I had five fish in four days on a reactionary, and every other fish was on a jig. And I was jigging crayfish patterns in weed beds, basically, and annihilating these things. And yet, I could not. It was a perfect reactionary. I could, I should have been able to get them to come on the other one. And, but if that's all I had, if all I had in my repertoire was to throw a fly out and rip it back at me, I would have been screwed. And then I start jig fishing, which is a vertical jig, just like you would with a spinning or bait caster, but I do it with my fly rod. And so I basically, I can strip, I can jerk, or I can jig. And so that's the difference. Or I could swing. I mean, you can swing too, but a passive swing does not. I have a, it works. Don't get me wrong. But again, I don't have a system. I don't just jerk strip. I don't just jig fish. I don't just swing. I don't just jerk or strip. I mean, I don't, you have to adapt to the condition, you know, And, and too many people get locked on something where they're not, they're just, and again, if that all you can do, and I ask people all the time, why don't you learn to do it this way? You know? You've got you're a, you're a one trick pony. You you should learn to do. And having taught hundreds of people, especially young anglers, and watch them go from a, a very good angler to a freaking great angler, is their ability to move their fly with their rod and not their stripping hand. That is
1: so interesting.
2: It is, and I mean, and now like Johnny, this guy I'm always picking out in my videos. He's a little midget. Uh, no, not truly, six, four, tall, dark, and handsome. But (laughs) everybody goes, why do you like pick on that guy? He's a little sickly guy. He just won't stick up for himself. And they're all, oh, that's so mean. And they meet him and they're like, holy shit. I go, yeah. (laughs) But I mean, Johnny's been with me for 18 years. He's way better than I am. Physics take over after a while. I mean, you don't get to stay the king very long, right? And then youth comes along they learn what you know. He's taller, smarter, better looking, and younger. He's going to be better. <laughs> it's got to happen, right? But the bottom line is, is that these kids, like I, Jeremy and Chris, these guys that work, they're not so much kids now, but when I get meet them, they're like 18, right? They learn so quickly. The new anglers aren't afraid to be, they'll do, they'll try anything. Get back to that gear thing. And so the new fly anglers, like when I was a kid, if you threw a streamer, you, none of the other anglers would talk to you. You know, what the hell's wrong with you? And then you'd still have some of that dry only thing. But these new guys and girls come along and they're so good. And they learn so fast because they don't have these pretense that they shouldn't. And then they change it. And it's like, oh, my God, this is so cool. It'll be. I don't give a shit about my flies and any of the other stuff that comes up. It's really cool. Somebody asked me just the other day, you know, what's my I, I like? I'm freaking dead or something. And I said, but but my contribution I hope my contribution is simply teaching people I didn't know or people I do know. I mean, that's a cool thing. If you make people better anglers, and it, and a lot of that has to do with the new wanting to learn more that when you know we were talking about this today with some the guys at the shop and uh about back in the day kind of like when we first started even we were talking about how you did it this way and there was a lot of stagnant thinking and the same in the gear world you know everywhere and then uh, well oh, it had nothing to do with it we, i was bitching about some new country guy and and then i laughed and i said, yeah i heard garth brooks say you couldn't have you couldn't have old country without new country and it was song, right, songwriters. And I go, yeah, I guess that's like us, you know, like the, and so that's really exciting to me as you, I mean, hell, look at you, you know, you're the, like the first mega influencer gal angler and that stuff. People fight it. Right. And they're, and they they're, they fight any of it. And the women coming into our industry, Anybody. Anybody you weren't a forty-year-old white guy. It was like, holy shit, what are you doing here? And so now you've got all this new new anglers. I don't know if they a long time ago, I got in this pissing match at the in a bar one night with the associate editor and the editor of Fly Rod and Reel, I think it was. I don't remember who they worked for. And we were talking shit and we're all drunk and and somehow it comes out that The guy said to me, what do you want this to become bass? I said, that'd be great with me. I would love to have all those new anglers, all those great new ideas, all those young kids that have thought of something that nobody will give a break to because they're young. I've said this for years. I said, Jesus, you can go out in Montana in the the triangle here and find kids that are 25 years old have been guiding around the world in five different continents since they were 18 years old. You don't think they're superstars? Are you shitting me? <laughs> and then you got the guy my age who's like, what, I'm going to be the best? I mean, are you shitting me? And we got in this discussion at this bar, and we wrote, and it was Gerak and I and some other guy, I don't remember. And we wrote this thing called The Generation Gap. And it shows sparse gray hackle standing there in his tweed jacket as the feature article and the cover, and then it shows some kid walking up the river in a pair of shorts with a beer in his backpack, just trouncing up the river, right? And he's got the new and the old. And Gearack wrote something to the effect of his, of course he's a writer, unlike me, I scratch, but he he's very eloquent. But his his ending was the way I see it: there's old assholes and there's new assholes. At least the new asshole has the opportunity to change. Right, good point. (laughs) And so you got all these great new anglers. So, like, we can't, we started on the swing thing, but you got all these great anglers, and people are pushing now. They're pushing, there's no more fit in, right? When I grew up fishing, I went fishing with, and I was lucky because of this guy, Dave Ellis, who is still the best dive, and I fished with every pro, I think, almost all of them. No one's in this guy's league. It's just intimidating to fish with the guy. He's 84 years old now. And he still just rocks it. I mean, he just goes. There's no, yeah, you're really good for an 84. It's like, god damn, I'm tired. I want to go home. <laughs> I, wish he'd, I wish he'd stop. And so, but anyway, the it used to be you had to fit in, you know, and well, you know better than anybody. A chick coming into this biz, holy shit. Uh, no thanks. And so, yeah. And and we and you had to fit in, and you did, and you didn't really buck it. And when I started bucking that thing with the streamer world, I took a lot of blowback. But nowadays, that gate's open, and the, the cows are coming home. And so all these people, they're trying stuff. It's so freaking cool. I get kids come into my shop, 18, 20 years old, and challenge me on something I said. It's like, this is cool. You're full of shit, but yeah, go ahead. <laughs> but it's just cool, right? It's like, yeah, 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 I've thought of that once. But uh, it's neat because here you go. And the information highway's so wide open. And it's that's really cool for me to see the swing guy, you know, like when they would challenge me and they would say, what an idiot. I was. Somebody would write back, once let... One of their own people would write back and say, well, asshole was last time mean, you tried something, you know. And, you know, as a buddy of ours who's a big steelhead guy, and he's, it's the only, his, his term, he's a dry fly, basically a dry fly on the sketch. And he's, it's the only dance I do. You might have met him once, his name's Don Vieira. He's just a perfect steelhead curmudgeon. And it's the only dance I do. And very happy to swing a dry fly until his rod arm falls off. <laughs> and, that, and that's good with him. And that's great. But, you know, don't be pissed off when somebody tries it different. And mm-hmm. I don't know. But that, I don't think you're doing anything wrong or they're doing anything wrong. or You know, I saw this thing called chasing the ghost on the Dean. And these guys were throwing a dry fly at him. And. Like it was something new. We were doing it 20 years before that. Upstream dry fly. I was sitting at the tail end of the giant's pool, and I saw these fish start eating. A, a here comes this hatch of drakes out of nowhere. I just landed a fish. I didn't have a fly even close to that. I had a humpy, a size four. I took a hair's ear that I had in my vest, and I plucked it, made it a comparadon, and got two still a, a floating hair's ear. It looked, like a, it looked like a little in the exact same spot these cats were trying to keep it secret, right? And I probably shouldn't have said that, but but it was the same thing. And it was like, and like I said, hey, ground, all these people that you push the envelope and suddenly it becomes the norm and everything's cool. And then the really hot shoes show up, you know, get to take it all in.
1: Well, here's a question for you, and I don't want to dive deep on down this rabbit hole simply because I'm sick to death of talking about it. If I'm being totally honest, I never want to talk about influencers and social media on my podcast again. Uh, so let that be a warning for everybody. I've, le- I've listened to what everyone has to say. I'm over talking about it, but let me throw it down this avenue. How do you feel about a lot of the new tires and um, people who are so desperate to be famous by way of a fly, um, selling, you know, trying to promote their flies and get their flies to be sold commercially, because that's not, that's beyond ego. I mean, now we're talking cutting into money and tricking consumers.
2: Well, I've probably dealt with as much piracy as anybody alive. And so, but I have a, You know, it's good to be the OG on a lot of stuff when you, it's, I get a lot of respect for it as far as people writing me, which is really cool. And, and I buy a lot of flies. And so a lot of the companies will call me and say, man, this fly is really close to yours. And I, I've had a lot of them where they're really close. And I said, yeah, what the hell, you know, you don't get to keep it all forever, you know, they change the head of a fly or they put a different color on it or something. And there's people that are flat out pirating. I mean, there's there's companies out there just flat stealing your flies. Right. And no shame. Change the name of the goddamn thing and it's your fly. But the people who are do, and and the companies, you know, I work for a Montana fly company. I worked for Rainey's, worked for Umpqua uh, in the past. But I work with them. And so when the flies come in, the companies have to be the ones that don't sell out. They have to say, you know, that's really close to this fly. But unfortunately, that's not that. It's been going on a long time. But, and again, that, a little bit like we were talking about, it comes down to the fact that did you tie it to make some money or did you tie it to catch fish? You know, and so you you, as as my dad said to me once, probably too late in my life, your your integrity's out for sale once and it's out for rent the rest of your life once you do it. And so, like I said, there's there's company. There's a company out there that just totally knocks off people's shit, including stealing the pictures. If you buy the fly, you're kind of you're complicit to the crime yourself. And so, but not everybody knows where they come from. And so that's not the consumer, it's just the consumer. And so I think it's a kind of a double-edged sword. The person doing it, probably doing it for the wrong reason, probably is going to be a one-hit wonder if they're lucky. And so I, the proof's in the pudding, as they say, if you the fly is either going to be something or it's a flash and... So it kind of weeds itself out. I mean, you want to talk I asked John Barr. I mean, he had the most famous royalty fly in history, the Copper John. That thing's been knocked off 50. That was the most successful royalty fly in history when it came out. In, in the tune of way up there, hundreds of thousands. And and on one fly, and then three years later, shit, every it's a copper this, a copper that, or this or that. And now it's just another fly. People only know where their OG came from, and so I don't know. It's it's a tough one for me. I don't want to discourage anybody, and people. I mean, I can't tell you how many thousands and thousands of emails I've gotten, letters, and you know, you know, I you inspired me to do this, and and I want to tie a fly. I don't want it to be like yours. I said, well, just don't make it like mine. Do do think, do something different, right? And. Uh, at some point, it's pretty goddamn hard to make a fly different. You know, I mean, how'd you like to be Rapala? Rapala loses a billion a year to one bait, you know, coming from China. That's a simple knockoff. And so that's tough, but I I don't think it's right. I think it's right. I, I think a lot of people have the same idea at the same time. And sometimes it's really nice to be Kelly because Kelly's flies go in first and Maybe that's not completely fair, but, you know, I don't I didn't release many flies lately because I have not anything new. I mean, I don't I don't because of the screwy names of my flies, which started with the stag line. But because of that, I have people send me I have a I have a library of fly names, which some of these people really need to see a doctor and they want me to make the fly to the name. Well, that's not exactly how I do things. I go out, I look at a fly. I have a new fly right now. I tied a fly up sitting at the desk the week before I went to the to go on that fishing trip. But I just wanted something really translucent. And I just played around. I wanted it light. I wanted a giant eye on it. I didn't want a giant head on it. I just wanted it light. And I, almost every fish I caught was on that fly. Now i got to give it to the guides and other people. And if it works just as well, it'll go in as a new fly because it doesn't really look like other flies. And I'm, I'm actually to the point where I, I think I might. I was just thinking because of my YouTube stuff, I try, it's so hard to keep doing that, as you know, to keep coming up with something new. And so, and I've got all these secret ideas I want. I've been playing with. And I'm going to just put them out and say, well, this is what I'm working on and this is what I'm trying to come up with, but I can't get it to fruition. Somebody else do it and see what happens and let somebody else take the thing and take it and run and collaborate. At some point, you don't want to worry about your royalty stuff because then you're not really designing for the right reason. And at this stage in the game for my dumb ass, it's like, it's just fun to see people and see growth and, I don't really need another royalty fly and, you know, I'd love to have about a hundred more, but I I think I'd be plagiarizing someone at that point. (laughs) So it's going to, I'm just going to set out all these kind of ideas and see, show them where mine is and see what happens.
1: Oh, that sounds like the best way to build community too. I mean, that sounds fantastic.
2: Uh, And, uh, you know, and uh, when you asked that question that, and I said I get a lot of respect in that. And it's not hail to anything. It's just like you helped and I don't wanna, you know, I wanna show the respect you helped me do this. And I don't wanna knock your stuff off. And I don't want nobody should ever wanna knock anybody's off.
1: One of the things that you have going for you are your unique names. Now I know everybody wants to talk to you about your names because they're hilarious and I've read that they're offensive to some people. I <laughs> My, what I, it? <laughs> exactly My question for you about them, though, is a little different. Do you think that you've branded yourself in some way because of your names? And I would like to just put it into perspective for you. I remember the first time I saw you, I was sitting at a bar at, I think it was iCast or oh, it was IFTD or one of the, one of the shows. Did I hit on right?
2: you?
1: No, because I'll, you? T- I'll tell it. you why. Well, you, you gave me a look, but I'll tell you why. I'm just going to okay, lay it good. all up. Thank you. You walk in with a very attractive Asian woman, and you're oh, giving maybe. me a look. And I remember thinking mm-hmm. to myself, "He is a pervert." We've never spoke; we didn't know each other, any of that stuff. But I just remember thinking, "He is a dirty, dirty pervert." I bet you she's an escort. Like I definitely had made up my, oh my mind God, about who, who you were.
2: <laughs> well, so, that was we actually met once before that even but um i was just, i just saw you somewhere and it's uh, but right when you were starting but uh now that it, it actually start well i may be a touch wrong but sick t- i usually tell people it's too much ted nugent but uh the first fly that had the name was the stack blonde. and i told you the story because i couldn't tie it well and I showed it to a friend of mine, Ray Schmidt, who I know you know. I love Ray. Ray. Yeah. Ray. Ray said, you'll never get that through. And it went through in a big way. <laughs> and that cannonball started rolling down the hill. It it the, the sex dungeon was the one that that one really it just had so much. There's a story, a gal named it I didn't. And there's a story to the first with Ray saying I couldn't do it and it'll never get through and blah, blah, blah. Well, that sucker takes off. And then it, it was just fun. And then it kind of, it kept going and there really aren't that many of them, but it got to the point now where, and it was, it was, it was unique and it was branding and it was fun and it was at the right time in the right place but now it's gotten to the point where there's so many coming like that coming around that, that I'm in, I, I swear to God, I'm thinking about calling them Joe and Steve and Bill and what's that? That's Bill. And it's like, because it's, you know, one, I get credit for every stupid name out there. There was a, there was this massive thread going on the, I don't remember what blog it was about what a sick piece of shit I was and but I'm glad you did notice that I walked in and checked you out. Uh, but there was there was this thread and it was what an worthless human I was because of the names of my flies. The only problem was he didn't have one fly that was mine. <laughs> this idiot and he (laughs) he he started with charlie's and craven and he had the two-bit hooker and he had to tell his 12 year old because she asked him what a two-bit hooker was and he had to tell her well then guys are going to tell her that fucking easter money wasn't real either and all this stuff and they start there's this defense i never got in on it ever i mean i'm not even going to preach why would i go defend my honor when it's not even my shit right and finally and so. I was like, oh, my God, I should say something like you you moron. But I didn't. And finally, somebody wrote in and says, you know, I've known Kelly a long time. Not only, you know, he has a family, has a handicapped kid. He isn't, you know, he plays certain parts in for fun. But blah blah blah. And he he was much more gracious to me than I would have been to myself. And the guy and I never wrote back. And finally the guy wrote me personally and said, I you know, I want you to know that uh I started this thing and I and I can tell you're a man of honor because you never respond. And I'm like, You're so full of shit, I just wasn't going down the rat hole with your dumbass. And I was just pissed, right? And but there's no way to get on. I mean, on these things, you know probably better than anyone. Yeah. I can't even imagine the, what well, the shit I get. I can't imagine what you get. And so, uh, but you can't go down that hole. And and I, I don't get the to my face pervert thing as much as I get online, but not even that anymore. Because again, the respect from being real and, and trying to help people your whole life, eventually it comes back to you. And so the people out there just, right back and say, you know, it's like when you said, you know, being offensive, you can't say anything without offending somebody. At some point, you got to shut up and just go and let it happen. You're pissed off. Good. I don't want to talk to you anyway. Go away. There's too many rats in this cage. And so I, you know, it started out as a completely, it was a complete tribute to Joe Brooks. And it just, but it was on a stacked hook. And I'm like, oh yeah, that is so And, I mean, if you look at the fly names, my fly names are no more racy or risque than the the blonde was because they were platinum blondes and honey blondes. And they were all women names. There were a lot of those. That was back in the 50s and early 60s, the Rat Pack, for God's sakes. But they were play on words and they were fun, you know. And... Now, like I said, now they're just kind of there. There's a couple of them that I pushed the, I pushed a little far on, and the pearl necklace was that one. It's simple yet elegant, you know, and it's <laughs> that, that one pushed just a little bit, and that's about when I, I, I brought it back in, and we just kind of slid backwards, and it, it, it had its run. It was fun as hell, and and it it, it did what it was supposed to, I suppose. <laughs> it got people thinking. I'll tell you, when that first came out, the Black Sax Dungeon came out, and I sold so many of that fly to women fly fishing groups that put them on their name tags for their placeholder, their uh, tables, and they'd have their annual banquets. And it was like, it just laughed my ass. Because here comes this gal, and she buys 50 of them, right? And she's leaving, and she's an older gal, and she says, every woman should have a Black Sax Dungeon. And, she, and so she put it on the name, and so I'm sure she pissed somebody off even doing that. And because it was not, I don't know it. It's not going to. It didn't hurt anything, and it definitely got a lot of talk. You know, look, look, so you
1: did. you wouldn't want me and my girlfriend's making names for flies. We would. Yes, would. You guys, we put you guys <laughs> oh, to shame.
2: I bet <laughs> you one of them sends me names. I told you a lot of you need help. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and so, you know you've got to push it right to the edge and and yeah it's over it's not over i'm still doing we still i mean the new one's the bush pilot and so there's a lot of shit out there that's coming out but it where it's it's not quite like it was you know it's like it's because it's no longer just kelly now it's whoever comes along they're so it's not unique. And so when it was just my flies like that, and it identified my flies too. So now when they come out and they're like that, with it's no longer, is that your fly? No, that's not my fly. It's just a crazy name, you know? And yeah. so, yeah, know, it was cool. <laughs> it was fun.
1: <laughs> well, I think that it's really cool to hear your evolution. It's I just think you do amazing things. It's so nice to speak to someone who actually thought into what they're doing. Uh, on so many different levels not just professionally and, and from the Kelly Gallup branding side but also in into the details of your flies and the way that you fish mm-hmm. for them. Yeah, I just I'm a big fan so I I'm very I appreciate thankful. it. That's yeah, very yeah. cool. Um I would like to wrap it up but I know that I've missed a million trillion things we didn't talk about the in there's a lot of stuff that we just don't have probably don't have the time to talk about right now. But is there anything in particular that you feel like I've missed that you would like to add or to ask me?
2: Not really. It was a pretty thorough interview. Um, no, not really. Pretty much covered it all. There's not that much to it. And the slide, the, the in, and all that. People can look that up online. There's just if you look my name up, it's going to end up there, so it doesn't matter.
1: Will you Which just is, give a shameless plug? Yeah.
2: Yes, <laughs> I just did, and so. <laughs>
1: no, the but, address. What's the what's the website address?
2: Oh, oh, well, I do it. I should you you do it. uh No, it's slidein dot com. And the slide in that's kind of a cool thing if somebody says how appropriate for you to get that name for your lodge. I
1: didn't want to be the
2: one uh, to say it, but <laughs> uh, <laughs> I almost in said with,
1: in with two ends, everybody. In
2: with two ends. Yeah, oh my god, I was just gonna say that because <laughs> people will write in and the, I had I had a lady call me and say, ask me if I was some sort of sick joke. And I said, what are you talking about? And she said, I typed in, I said, how did you type that? She goes, oh, my God, I'll call you back. Because she realized (laughs) she called back and apologized, right? And this was in 1959, the second biggest earthquake in U.S. history, and the biggest landmass ever happened a mile above here. And this lodge was never a fishing lodge, ever, until I bought it. It was a tourist trap to come see that giant earthquake, which slid across the Madison River and created this, you know, this, the, the lake up above it. But it was supposed to be everybody thought people would come to see it. And I, I don't know. They might have. But it's just always been the slide. And it's the slide area. So I didn't name it. I might have named it, but I didn't name it. <laughs> so it was, it was uh, done a long time ago. But it's a, it's a people can find it that way. But
1: are you still guiding, Kelly? Mm-hmm.
2: No, I'm not still guiding. I'm too old and grumpy. Yeah. You know, when I get a day off to go fish, I like to go fish. And so, yeah, it's it's not not good for me anymore. Forty five years though.
1: Yeah. I did right. forty five years. I don't know how you did That's it. It's a long time. I did ten, and I always said I would do ten, and by year ten, I was out.
2: Yes. I was sitting on Mike Craig's uh, front porch once on the Bighorn, and he watched a guy go by, rowing with his head down, just like. And he's. It's the first time I ever heard it was a long time ago. It was the first time I ever heard the expression. He goes, "Stick a fork in him, he's done." And he and I said, "Long day." He goes, "Long life." Yeah. <laughs> he goes. He needs. He says. He need, And I know the guy. He goes. He needs to retire. He did shortly thereafter. He goes. And I've told everybody the same. You need to know when you can't answer that one question again. Mm-hmm. And what is it? Was my or you know what the question is? And mine was how do we get back to the car? It just I finally couldn't answer that question. Had nothing to do with fishing. Had nothing to do with anything. <laughs> I just I, I just couldn't. And I and I can't tell you the whole story. It's long. But and I, and I have to disclose the names. But and I, I I I said I just can't do this again. And I I quit guiding for the most part. I I still guided a little bit. But uh, getting off that 200 plus day rat train was – I had to get away from that. So I still try to find some idiot that's dumb enough to go out with me for one day to say I guided for 46 years, you know, because I did one trip this year. (laughs) And I did that this year. I took my cousin down the river, which he's a pain in the ass. So, I mean, it's a total – you might have met him too, because he's him and Jerry and Peter are all good buddies. And but he's a terrible angler. I hope he hears this. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs>
1: Kelly, thank you so much for taking the time, and um, hopefully, we get to see each other again at a trade show, Escort or not
2: hey well i, just, I like that i just was <laughs> my, my new fly she's probably uh, your wife not. i'm
1: sorry i'm sorry no, to whoever's listening. she
2: was my girlfriend for a long time she's a lovely gal but uh and a really good angler. but no, she wasn't an escort oh that could have been a different time who knows
1: <laughs> all right we continue so, on yeah. the show? thanks
2: kelly uh, thanks bye-bye Bye.
1: and that concludes this episode of anchored thank you for listening